Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah Mayu, Associate Professor of Law at Vanderbilt Law School. We will discuss her new book, Free Justice, A History of the Public Defender in 20th Century America, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, we got in touch about doing an interview because I really loved this book and I learned a lot from it, a lot that I didn't know about the history of public defenders in America, the concept of public defense, and and really how it got started. So I was wondering if, like, in order to kind of kick off the interview, you could take us back in time to the moment where the idea of a public defender was really kind of first proposed in America and kind of describe to listeners what criminal law and criminal representation looked like at that moment in time and why people were thinking initially about the idea of the possibility of a public defender. Okay, sure. So, well, one thing one thing that historians always debate, of course, is where do you say something started or what do you call the first time someone proposed something? So, uh, I guess if you really wanted to think very broadly about the origins of the idea of equal justice or something, you could go much farther back than I did in the book. But where I start in the book with the kind of modern public defender as we think about it today, which is uh, a lawyer who is hired or paid by the government in some capacity to represent criminal defendants who otherwise don't have their own representation So I start that story in the late 19th century, and particularly in kind of the Gilded Age, uh, Progressive Era, 1890s, that kind of turn of the century moment, when criminal courts in the United States were kind of seen by a lot of people for different reasons, but basically kind of seen as this very chaotic, disorderly, kind of um, not working very well type of institution that needed to be remade or reinvented in various ways. So in cities, which were growing very quickly at this time, which had a lot of new immigrants arriving from Europe and other um, parts of the world, there was this sense that um, the criminal court's were very corrupt, were very kind of literally dirty, very chaotic. And, um, you know, people were coming and going. People might have a lawyer. They might not. There might be lawyers just kind of hanging around who would kind of represent people that may or may not have fully understood they were being represented because then we're going to go try to extort your family and tell them that you owe us money. Uh, So it was just kind of... um, Like the descriptions you read, for instance, of the criminal courts in New York City at this time, it just sounds like total chaos, Um, which is not to say, I guess some people today might still describe the courts that way, but it's certainly a different kind of chaos. But um, so that's kind of the sort of backdrop for this. Uh, And the woman who is credited with really inventing the kind of modern idea of the public defender and proposing legislation around public defenders um, first in California, but then also uh, she traveled around the country proposing this was a woman named Clara Foltz, who was a lawyer in California, was actually the first woman to be admitted to the California bar. And my, um, my understanding of Clara Foltz owes very much to the pioneering biography and other research that was done on Clara Foltz by Barbara Babcock, who was a professor at Stanford Law School for a long time, who actually passed away this um, year, sadly. But Barbara Babcock kind of uncovered the, put together a lot of the material about Clara Foltz and kind of showed how she developed this very early idea of the public defender. So that's kind of where I begin in the book. And Clara Foltz had a number of different kind of reasons for thinking that 
governments, kind of local courts um, should be in the business of hiring public officials who would be called public defenders to represent criminal defendants, rather than relying on the private bar and rather than relying on courts appointing lawyers um, here and there on a case-by-case basis. Instead, she proposed that there should be this institutionalized full-time entity of the public defender that would specialize in these cases across the board. And one reason was simply that she sympathized with criminal defendants and particularly with indigent criminal defendants because they often, obviously they couldn't afford to hire lawyers. They often were at the mercy of um, either whoever the court appointed or maybe even couldn't secure representation of any kind. But even if the court appointed a lawyer, it might be someone that didn't really know what they were doing or wasn't so invested in their appointed cases. Or as I mentioned before, was really kind of in it not to help the defendant, but to kind of try to extort some payment from someone afterwards. So she, on on the one hand, sympathized very much with the plight of criminal defendants and thought that there should be some more organized, institutionalized way of uh, representing them in criminal cases. She also sympathized a lot with uh, criminal lawyers because she had been, you know, as as a woman lawyer at a time when that was seen as a very strange thing to be, it was very hard for her to get work. And she often would take court-appointed cases and... Um, But then you often wouldn't get paid for them or you would get paid, depending on what jurisdiction you were in, you might get reimbursed some minimal amount, but it wasn't seen as a very kind of respectable, esteemed thing to do. So partly what I think the vision also was, was that you could create this new career path of the public defender that people could pursue and it would be kind of a more institutionalized, respectable way of starting out a legal career. So Clara Fultz kind of gets the ball rolling, and the idea actually does take hold fairly early in California. Uh, Then there's also some other figures that kind of either join on with her idea or develop their own versions of the public defender idea. And so another figure I talk about in the book is a lawyer in New York City named Meyer Goldman, who was of um, German-Jewish descent. His grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Germany. His parents were both born in New Orleans, actually. And then he eventually, the family makes its way to New York City, and he became a lawyer in New York City. And he, interestingly, I don't think that he ever actually acknowledged that Clara Foltz had also proposed a public defender. So his published writings don't um, really credit her for having his his writings don't really credit her as much as her at all. Um, but he nevertheless also becomes a big cheerleader for the public defender idea. And he actually wrote a book uh, called The Public Defender, uh, a necessary factor in the administration of justice uh, that circa like 1918, 1920, so a slight, you know, a later period than Clara Foltz, but um, still in the early 20th century, he was a huge proponent of this similar idea that local courts should have kind of on their staff, just the way they have full-time prosecutors by this time that are salaried typically by this time, they should have salaried full-time public defenders on the other side that would be public government employees and that would take the defense side in any criminal case. And so he was kind of a gadfly of the bar in New York for a long time. He was constantly trying to propose this idea or get himself on committees to promote the idea. But what happened is that the um, public defender, although it had taken hold fairly early in California and also actually Chicago established, uh, Cook County, Illinois establishes a public defender around 1930. So there's some places where the idea takes hold during this earlier period. But in a lot of parts of the United States, and particularly in the Northeastern cities, the established private bar does not like the idea in the early 20th century. And they instead say, um, 
we don't want public defenders because we don't want the government getting too involved in the legal profession. We certainly don't want the government paying lawyers on the criminal defense side. Um, So what we want to do instead is start private kind of charitable organizations on the model of a legal aid society that will be supported by the private bar and that will provide defense counsel in some set of cases, but that will ideally be totally privately funded through donations and therefore can remain totally independent from the government and from um, kind of the public model that someone like Clara Foltz or later Meyer Goldman had envisioned. So that's kind of the very early origins of the debate. Well, so one thing that I was really fascinated by in the book and that I'd never heard about before was how some of these early proposals seem to have been derived from or at least related to uh, the late 19th century author Richard Bellamy and his, I believe it was the nationalist movement, you said in the book. Um, so I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what he proposed, why he proposed it, how it informed or maybe didn't necessarily inform actual efforts to create public defenders and sort of what the reaction to his ideas and arguments were. Yeah. Oh, so Edward Bellamy, I think, is is the name. Um, so Edward Bellamy was a this kind of historic, this sort of well-known figure in, in Gilded Age United States who wrote this very best-selling book called Looking Backward, um, which still actually, you know, I actually think I was assigned to read this in one of my college history classes, and, and it's still, um, you know, fairly well-known. Now, No, I don't think anyone reads it because they think it's a good novel, but rather more as kind of a primary source that gives us insight into the culture in late 19th century United States and what people's concerns were. But he, um, the book overall, it's this, it's this kind of utopian novel about what will the United States look like in the year 2000. And he's writing this in the 1880s when, when there is violent uh, conflict going on between labor and capital. And when there's, you know, obviously a lot of tumultuous change in the United States between urbanization and industrialization and mass immigration and the kind of um, re- the fall, the end of Reconstruction in the South and the rise of Jim Crow. And so it's obviously a very tumultuous and frightening time, I think, um, a time of widening economic inequality for a lot of Americans. And so Bellamy created this vision where by the year 2000, all of this conflict will have somehow melted away. And it's often described as a socialist utopia because it became kind of an inspiration to a lot of people that later identified as socialists. But he never exactly identified himself as a socialist per se in the, in, in the sense that it would that we would later think of it. But what it certainly is, is a collectivist vision of a totally nationalized economy where there, where the state basically has become everything. And so everyone kind of is provided for by the nation and all your material needs are provided for. And in exchange, you have to contribute some labor in, in the national labor force and, it's all very um, regimented in that way. So it's kind of it's kind of a precursor to you know socialist or communist visions of a kind. But it's in any event, it's very collectivist, clearly, and also very authoritarian, really, because you don't have a lot of individual rights or liberties in this world. You kind of have to do your job that's assigned to you, and then in exchange, you get taken care of and etc. So it's kind of odd that I think to later readers, it might be kind of odd that this would seem utopian or appealing in any way. But what was apparently appealing about it to a lot of Americans was at at the time was this sense that, um, that in the future, all of these economic inequalities, all of these divisions, all of these 
battles between the emerging kind of robber baron model of corporate capitalism and working the kind of working classes that were being very brutally treated and that all of that could somehow eventually be resolved and, and we would have this very placid, peaceful, orderly future where no one would need to worry, they would all be taken care of and they would all have a role to play. So so in some sense, that vision seemed to be appealing to people. Anyway, so that's like the big picture of what is in this book, but there's a few details in this book that happen to deal with what he thought courts would look like in the future. And one of those details, and, and actually Bellamy had a very brief frame out where he like attempted to practice law himself for like a day or two, and then quickly realized he hated lawyers and that they were all kind of in his mind, money grubbing um, and corrupt. And so he, he did not like lawyers. So that's kind of the context for why he envisioned a utopia without lawyers. But he basically had this vision where the courts, there, there basically wouldn't be crime in his utopia, because obviously, uh, if it's utopia, no one would be kind of hurting one another or steal. No one needs to steal because everyone has guaranteed material um, provision and so on. But to the extent that every once in a while, someone might do something that was a problem, which he would call an atavism, not a crime. Um, you would then have this judicial process where you would have uh, a not a lawyer, I guess, but kind of a person on both sides. And so in that sense, it would kind of look like the courts that we're familiar with, with a prosecutor and a defender, but they wouldn't be adversaries. They would just kind of retry the case over and over again until they came to some agreement. So that was his um, vision of the courts. What then happens, I mean, that was the vision in the novel. What then happens is that his book takes off and becomes a runaway success. And people all around the country form these nationalist clubs to talk about these ideas and once people start forming these clubs, then it becomes much more of a political movement and it becomes, you know, it's less of a kind of utopian thought experiment. And it's more of let's propose ideas for right now. And so he kind of gets sucked into becoming more of a political activist of a kind. And um, one of the people that reads his book and joins one of these clubs is, and this is something I also credit, um, it's not my discovery, but that Barbara Babcock writes about in her work on Clara Foltz as well. Um, Clara Foltz was actually um, a, a fan of Bellamy and a member of the Nationalist Club in her area. And so she's one of the people that reads these ideas. And Bellamy even also later wrote in a newspaper that he started kind of more concretely about his idea that there should be a public defender in criminal cases. And so Fultz, um, I think that's part of where she got the idea, but she certainly also put a lot of her own experience into it and, and really had her own independent idea of what a public defender should be. And so kind of out of all of those influences of uh, the late 19th century, develops this idea, you know, different versions of this idea for the public defender. Uh, Bellamy's idea was very, um, was not very concerned with individual liberties at all, and was very kind of um, collectivist in the sense that like, you might, you would have, you would, you would, in some versions of this idea, be required to have a public defender, it wouldn't just be an option, it would be something that you would that all criminal defendants would be assigned a public defender, that the courts in his vision shouldn't be very adversarial. Whereas Fultz had a much more of a traditional vision of a criminal defense lawyer. And she thought public defenders should be adversarial vis-a-vis -vis the prosecutor. But what she thought is that they should be public. They should be provided to everyone free of charge and paid for by the government. So she kind of um, had a different twist on the idea, but Certainly, that was one influence on her thinking was this um, sort of brief craze for what was known as Bellamyite nationalism.
Well, my impression from the book was that Fultz kind of took this kernel of an idea and ran with it in her own direction that ultimately is not entirely dissimilar from what we ended up instantiating much later in the 20th century. But one thing that was really interesting for me in the book was the way you talk about the early discussion of the ideas of uh, potentially creating a public defender and how the role of the public defender as presented would have been kind of more Bellamyite in the way you describe it, almost a kind of collaboration with the state as opposed to a lawyer representing a client and only the client. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and sort of like why people thought that would be a good thing and what the response to those kind of proposals was. Yeah. So this is very interesting. And I think whenever, when other legal scholars go back and look at these progressive era debates about the public defender um, to the extent that they have, this often is the most shocking and horrifying thing about the progressive era debates to legal scholars or lawyers who are very um, steeped in our current kind of adversarial legal culture and our current conception of the criminal defense lawyer as um, really kind of standing up against the state. But in the progressive era, the lawyers and other advocates who were envisioning public defenders often did envision the public defender not as an adversary of the district attorney or the prosecutor, um, but really as kind of a colleague or a um, that they would work in cooperation with one another and that they would, um, you know, they would sort of meet and look at all the evidence. And if it turned out that the defendant was actually innocent, the prosecutor would say, oh, you know, we made a mistake. We'll go let him out right now. And if, in fact, the evidence showed that the defendant was guilty, then they would kind of discuss what would be the most appropriate punishment to ensure that no one was overpunished. But the idea was that this way you wouldn't need to have a lot of, um, you wouldn't need to have basically full-blown jury trials or other kinds of um, proceedings in a lot of cases, and that would save money and that would be more efficient and it could be more scientific as well because um, the two sides wouldn't be trying to kind of trick one another or one-up one another or compete to see who could make the best, who could kind of put on the best show in the courtroom, but rather they would be kind of together giving a sober-minded look at all of the evidence on both sides, kind of the way that I guess in this, it's kind of depending on this idealized image of scientists as people who just kind of collaborate to find the truth and that this is also how lawyers should behave. So the idea being once you have a public official on both sides of the case, then um, both sides won't have any reason. Neither side is depending on a paycheck from a private client, so they can adopt this more collaborative mode. Okay, so all of that obviously sounds, I think, today to most people, if not everyone <laughs> that is kind of trained in law schools or in the legal profession today, that all sounds kind of nutty. It sounds a lot like what you're saying is that the defense attorney should just kind of capitulate to the prosecutor or be willing to kind of plea bargain away the rights of the defendant and that you're not concerned with the procedural rights of the defendant to um, hold the prosecutor to their burden and, and to have a full-blown trial if they want one and so on. So why did it why did this sound appealing to people during the progressive era, I think is an interesting question. And I don't think it's just that they thought everyone was guilty and should capitulate to the state. I mean, that is one interpretation of this that other scholars have suggested, which is, I think, uh, an interpretation that takes our present concerns about overcriminalization and mass incarceration and so on and kind of reads that backwards and says, I can't, you know, I can't believe they were um, envisioning this and um, 
I don't know, like this proves that the whole thing has been rigged all along or something like that. So I don't actually have that interpretation, partly because I don't think um, we can draw any line from these progressive era debates to our current. I mean, I guess we can draw a line, but I think it's a fairly thin dotted line because basically no one at the time agreed with any of these proposals. Um, exactly. So I don't think we can say that like today's public defenders somehow inherited any of these ideas, but um I nevertheless think they're interesting because they tell us something about progressive era legal culture. But I think what they tell us is not that, um, you know, they, they didn't understand the correct adversarial way that lawyers are supposed to behave. I think it just shows us that they didn't have our same adversarial conception exactly. Now, certainly within American legal culture, there was a an adversarial conception of the trial out there during the progressive era. But what we see is that there were also some lawyers who were questioning that or kind of wondering whether the United States, whether American legal culture should kind of try something new that was, that was not so adversarial. And why would they think that was a good idea? Well, I think it's partly because um, everything about the criminal courts was totally kind of up in the air at this time was being there were all kinds of reform proposals out there. This is the same context out of which we get probation and um, parole and indeterminate sentencing and all kinds of experiments with things that we might now think sound um, a lot like eugenics or kind of, you know, um, sterilization as a punishment um, mandatory psychiatric treatment as punishment. So like some of these things, um, have survived, like the idea of probation officers and some of these things we now look back on and think that they sound really horrific. But my point is just that this was a moment where there was all kinds of ferment and, um, nothing seemed really very fixed about how criminal courts operated or what the roles of the different participants should be. And so in that context where people weren't really taking anything for granted, they were willing to say, well, maybe even the idea that the prosecutor and the defense attorney are these kind of um, opposed adversaries and that their only goal should be to beat the other side and to win at all costs and that they shouldn't think about truth or what really happened, but their job is to represent their side of the case. And then through that clash of adversaries, the truth will somehow emerge, right? That's the traditional view. A lot of people, in, I mean, at, at least some people in the progressive era were um, open to rethinking that in, in ways that I think are kind of interesting to look back at, precisely because they that's not really how later in the 20th century people would be talking about criminal defense attorneys generally, or even public defenders, I would argue. I think what I also would say about this is that, um, you know, prosecutors weren't exactly the sort of extremely powerful figures that they have become. Although that is a, that's something that people are writing a lot of historical work or should write a lot of historical work about, um, which I'm not, but I mean, I think there's still a lot more we need to learn about the history of prosecutors as well. So I hope other people will kind of enrich our understanding of that in future work. But, but what I do get the sense is that, um, you know, prosecutors were not necessarily seen as these kind of powerful political figures in the way that they later would become. So when you would talk in the progressive era about, you know, maybe defenders and prosecutors should collaborate a little more, they were also envisioning more cooperation from the prosecutor's side. So it was so the defender would cooperate, but also the prosecutor might be kind of amenable to you know, let dropping the charges if there wasn't evidence and so on and so forth. So it was envisioned as this kind of two, two-sided thing. Anyway, I don't think, um, even at the time, these ideas, while they were circulating, they did not convince a majority of the legal profession. And so even when um, we later get public defenders on a nationwide scale, I don't actually think that they were created in this mold of the progressive era cooperative public defender. Yeah. So in light of that, 
in the progressive era, how did the bar respond to these kinds of proposals? Because as I understood it from the book, they kind of were effectively proposals to the bar in a lot of cases. And in relation to that sort of who was the bar in the relevant sense at that point in time, how did that color their perspective on what was being proposed? And what, if anything, did they actually try to do? So I think it depends a lot on where where in the country you're looking at in this time period, because in Los Angeles, for instance, which was, you know, which was very small in the, at the end of the 19th century. And then by the 1930s was a very large city. So Los Angeles grows very quickly during this time period. And because it's growing so quickly, it's getting a lot of people moving there from all over the place. And there's not kind of such an entrenched uh, hierarchy or way of doing things. And so in Los Angeles, they established a public defender's office in 1914. And, you know, and then the bar kind of grows up around that in Los Angeles. But in contrast, in New York, there was a very longstanding, entrenched private bar, meaning people who work at private law firms, kind of the proto, the prototypes or early versions of um, some of the same Wall Street corporate law firms that are around today in some cases, or in some cases, law firms that kind of have disappeared from the from our present landscape, but nevertheless, there was kind of this tier of sort of what, who kind of considered themselves the elite of the legal profession, who often worked for law firms, often advised corporations or very wealthy clients. And they also at this time were organizing some of the early bar associations that we still have today. Um, that were trying to secure greater power to discipline other lawyers. And this is kind of the time period out of which we get the whole apparatus of bar disciplinary proceedings and organized bar associations in the late 19th century. So they, so in New York, that kind of group um, to kind of oversimplify, I guess, but to kind of paint them all um, together, they basically reject the idea of the public defender. They certainly reject Meyer Goldman, and they think of him as this kind of annoying gadfly who um, is kind of always proposing this this public defender thing, which they don't want to do. And what they instead want to do, as I mentioned, is put indigent defense under the umbrella of legal aid, meaning like private legal aid societies, uh, some of which already existed by this time, and which often had ties with elite corporate lawyers. Um, Not all corporate lawyers even supported legal aid, right? So some of them thought like poor people shouldn't, did there was no problem like with poor people needing access to lawyers at all, or it wasn't the bar's job to worry about that, right? But to the extent that corporate lawyers did care about legal aid or did recognize some problem with um indigent defendants, as well as other um, immigrant and people who were poor, et cetera, needing legal representation for various reasons, they often preferred to do it through a private organization, such as a legal aid society, which could be kind of under the auspices of these bar associations and other professional organizations which could rely ideally on private donations, either from individual donors. So the Rockefellers give a lot of money to legal aid in New York, um, as well as law firms. So in New York, they would often, um, they got pretty good at convincing law firms to contribute to legal aid. But the idea being that whatever kind of source of money you would have, it wasn't coming from the government. It wasn't coming from taxpayers. And so therefore, this would preserve the independence of the profession from the government. There was this concern that um, you don't want the legal profession to be kind of swept up too much with the government, with the state, with public funding, with things like that, which might come with strings attached or which might kind of erode the idea of an independent profession. 
Well, I think most people think about the history of the public defender in relation to the Supreme Court case, Gideon. But in the book, you point out a sort of dialogue almost between the Supreme Court and its kind of stringing of cases around the right to representation in in criminal proceedings with the bar. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dialogue and how you think sort of what the bar was doing, what criminal defense and indigent criminal defense specifically actually looked like and how that informed the way the Supreme Court kind of saw its role in that conversation. Okay, so yeah, there is, I think now we think about public defenders and they're very intertwined in the public imagination with Gideon. Well, to the extent that the public has any imagination of this, I think it's very intertwined with Gideon versus Wainwright, but also more generally with constitutional rights and like the idea that public defenders are um, fulfilling constitutional guarantees, right? In the, pro- in the progressive era, in, and even to some extent in the pre-Gideon era generally, but certainly in the very early 20th century, um, these debates about the public defender were not really about constitutional questions. They were much more about institutional debates about local courts and should we have a public official do this or can the private sector handle it and so on. Meanwhile, though, there is the whole time that lawyers are debating these institutional questions about public defenders, there is this line of Supreme Court cases interpreting both uh, the Due Process Clause generally and then later the Sixth Amendment, which has this assistance of counsel language in it. And that line of cases gradually developed this idea that, well, criminal defendants always, of course, had the idea, had the right to counsel in the sense of the right to hire their own counsel. And then gradually over time, the courts read that to also imply some duty on courts to appoint counsel, at least in some category of cases. And then um, by the time of Gideon, the right to counsel means that there's an obligation to appoint counsel in all felony criminal cases. Um, And so how does that relate to the public defender is kind of complex because Gideon doesn't literally say uh, every city has to establish a public defender, but it does say every defendant has the right to counsel. And so therefore the conclusion is basically that... um, the best way to do this, especially in urban areas, is to establish a public defender. So that's why Gideon and the public defender kind of join together at that moment, and you get uh, an expansion of public defender offices after Gideon uh, in a lot of parts of the country, although, of course, not everywhere. Um, There are other ways that some jurisdictions try to comply with Gideon or arguably like don't really comply with Gideon, but ostensibly do, which is, um, you know, you could, you could just have judges continue doing the 19th century thing of appointing private lawyers on a case by case basis, kind of in an ad hoc way. Um, So the relationship between kind of the constitutional right to counsel and the public defender as an institution is, is is not totally linear, but certainly by the time of Gideon, the legal profession has developed a set of best practices that suggest that the, the recommendation is that public defenders are ideally uh, an institution that would exist in, in most places around the country. But throughout this period, and maybe this is what you're kind of asking about, what I found at the local level was that a lot of these earlier private legal aid type organizations that existed. So for example, I look in the book at a at an organization in Boston called the Voluntary Defenders Committee, which was one of these private organizations that provided indigent defense and they were trying to do it solely through private donations. And they start in the 1930s and they never really succeed at um you know, their funding is always very volatile and they never really succeed at getting a kind of secure funding base from private donors. And then by the 1950, by the late 1950s, everyone kind of thinks that a case that something like Gideon is 
going to come soon from the Supreme Court because the direction of the case law had been moving in this direction of steadily expanding the right to counsel. And so there's kind of this interesting interplay I found at the very local level, which is that uh, private donors and and um, in Boston, they were getting a lot of funds from the community chest, which was kind of like a, which is now what is called United Way, which are these local kind of clearinghouses for charitable donations that distribute funds to organizations in the community. And by the late 1950s, early 1960s, they were telling these legal aid groups, we don't want to pay for criminal defense anymore because if it's if it's really a constitutional right, which seems to be the way things are going, then that also probably means the state should pay for it, right? Um, so even though the the debate in the constitutional cases was not on the surface about whether or not there should be a public defender or some private alternative, the way people interpret it at the very local level is that constitutional rights are kind of associated with public funding and public implementation. And so um, that's why eventually, even, you know, even starting before Gideon, but certainly after Gideon, all of these earlier private indigent defense organizations um, either officially just kind of transform themselves into government agencies in some cases, or they remain in existence as a nominally private nonprofit in some capacity, but they now get huge amounts of public funding and kind of are basically like a contractor with the government. And so that idea that some lawyers had had earlier in the 20th century that you could do this entirely with private funding alone and remain totally unencumbered by any kind of state oversight or state accountability or public, you know, whatever restrictions come along with accepting public funding, that just became totally untenable once the right to counsel became more universal. Well, so in in the book, you talk a little bit about, or rather you talk a lot about, you know, the impact that Gideon had on kind of what indigent defense looked like on the ground. And I'll be honest, I mean, I found that fascinating, shocking, and kind of terrifying all at the same time. And specifically, you look at, you know, a few different states or areas in the country and talk about what happened. I mean, I wonder, for the benefit of listeners who haven't read the book yet, you could specifically sort of just kind of fill people in on a couple of those observations. And I was thinking specifically, like when Gideon was decided, what was happening in Massachusetts? What was happening in Mississippi? And why did you think those two examples were particularly illuminating in sort of understanding how the bar and kind of the state responded to this new obligation in relation to what they were already doing at the time? Yeah, so I guess one observation is that I really, the book obviously could have been twice as long or five times as long because I could have tried to figure out what was happening in every state, um, which I don't know that that would have been a book that anyone would have had time to read. But um, I do zoom in, as you note, on a few different states that I thought were particularly illustrative of certain dimensions of what happens after Gideon. Um, and Massachusetts is one of those states because what happens in Massachusetts is that you had a private organization that was providing indigent defense, at least in Boston, at least in some cases prior to Gideon, that actually right on the eve of Gideon had already um, sort of been transmuted through state legislative reforms into a state agency. So they have sort of a fledgling public defender in Massachusetts that's kind of ready to go when Gideon is decided. And so that's, um, some people at the time look at that and say, oh, this is the best case scenario because they have already the infrastructure in place. They're very committed. You know, Massachusetts has this um, stereotypical or like this sense of itself as a very liberal enlightened state, although I don't necessarily (laughs) adhere to that view of Massachusetts. But um, the 
you know, so that's theoretically maybe like a good case scenario of what happens after Gideon. But actually what you see is that it's very tumultuous and kind of, I don't know, there's a lot of conflict on the ground. There are local judges in some of the local criminal courts in Boston and elsewhere in Massachusetts that think, um, you know, quote, to paraphrase, like the Supreme Court has gone too far with these constitutional rights. We don't need a public defender. I can just appoint these lawyers that I know that that happen to be in my courtroom. Or if it's really kind of an easy case, I can just take care of it myself. We don't need to get lawyers involved. So there is a lot of um, just kind of things that difficulties that arise when you suddenly now say there's this constitutional right. Everyone then has to implement it on the ground. And, and there's a, a lot less consensus on the ground that you might than you might think. Because the standard story about Gideon often is states were already moving this way before Gideon. Gideon was just kind of putting the icing on the cake or kind of confirming what a lot of states had already concluded about the importance of indigent defense, that states were already doing a pretty good job of this before Gideon. It's only in the deep South that they weren't. And that's who Gideon was targeted at was these few recalcitrant states. And what Massachusetts shows is that that's not really true um, at all, that the states hadn't really been necessarily doing a very good job of this before Gideon, that they still were working out a lot of these questions even after Gideon. Um, And also that, you know, it's one thing for states to be sort of moving in a direction or experimenting with things on the ground before Gideon. But once the Supreme Court really says this is a constitutional right, now it's like much more enforceable and they get much more concerned about actually... um, doing it. And so the case of Massachusetts kind of shows that there's not, I don't think there's, I mean, obviously the story is different in different parts of the country and maybe in California where they really did have well-established public defenders, Gideon wasn't quite such a tumultuous thing. But even in a lot of parts of the country that ostensibly already had some type of a right to counsel at the state level prior to Gideon, Gideon caused a lot of change and a lot of kind of consternation and conflict um, on the ground. So that's kind of what Massachusetts shows. Then what Mississippi shows is kind of, okay, well, this is the standard story, which is Gideon was targeting the Deep South. And so Massachusetts, I mean, Mississippi certainly is um, an example of that and um, shows what is kind of, what is, I guess, story kind of confirms that something that is accurate about this account of Gideon, which is that it is true that in the Deep South, there were very weak um, right to counsel provisions at the state level prior to Gideon. Um, basically, you might have a right to appointed counsel if it was a capital, even that you might get appointed a lawyer who wasn't going to do a very good job. Um, I think race is an important dimension of this story everywhere in the country, but certainly that's especially true in Mississippi, where the bar was not, you know, was not 100% white at this time, but it was pretty close. And that was because the, um, the Southern, the legal profession in the Southern states remained kind of under the domination of these kind of basically white supremacist men who um, had a very kind of racially exclusive vision of, of what it meant to be a lawyer and that kind of thing. So, um, so the case in Mississippi is like the worst case scenario to then go in and say, okay, now um, the state has an obligation to provide counsel in some capacity for every criminal defendant. And um basically what you see is that not really that much changes in Mississippi, even though they get some grant funding and some other, um, you know, there are initiatives to sort of establish public defenders here and there in Mississippi in the late 1960s, but none of them, 
either they don't last very long or they kind of get co-opted by private law firms who take the grant money to say they're serving as public defenders and aren't really doing very much for anyone and so and so on. So there's just kind of um, Mississippi's kind of the other end of the spectrum where you see sort of um, you know, what happens in a state that really wasn't doing very much before Gideon and then kind of still didn't do very much in a meaningful sense after Gideon. Um, and I think there are probably, you know, dozens of other local like permutations of this that, that, that people could find or that hopefully future, um, historians will kind of uncover, but I thought that Massachusetts and Mississippi provided kind of two very illustrative examples of, of different ways that this could look on the ground. Um, neither of which, as you note, is very kind of, um, it sound is a very positive story, but both of which I think show the difficulties of, of kind of the Supreme Court issuing some, or coming up with some vision at a very high level of generality of some kind of ideal vision of what criminal trials should look like. And then somehow that is supposed to get translated into local reality and that it basically proves very convoluted and, and incomplete in that kind of process of translation. And I think Massachusetts and Mississippi also I like because um, in the, in the minds of people at the time, I mean, I, I think this is somewhat true still today, but certainly at the time in the 1960s, in the context of the civil rights movement and so on, Mississippi has this kind of image in the American mind as um, almost like they they see it as just like almost a separate country, like uh, th that, um, you know, it doesn't even look like America. They don't care about the law. They don't care about rights. They don't care about the constitution and so on. So I guess what I kind of wanted to say also is um, that that discourse of trying to separate out Mississippi from America um, has a lot of problems with it, I guess. But I think in some ways, Mississippi was actually a pretty good representation of what, of what this looked like. Um, even though it's kind of maybe a more all of the problems are kind of more in your face, I guess, in Mississippi, but um, I don't know. Anyway, I could talk about that for a long time, but. Yeah, yeah, no, and I thought that was a fantastic, fascinating, and and really provocative part of the book. And in light of that, I mean, I, I wonder if you could say a little something about how you think this history of the concept of the public defender and what it means to provide indigent defense ought to inform the way we think about that question today, when I think it's like, once again, really newly on people's minds and we're talking about what criminal prosecution and the criminal law system ought to look like. So I guess I am someone who thinks that history does not really provide us with very specific answers about what we should do today. I mean, there's different views about that among historians or people who think a lot about history. Um, so I don't think this history can tell us like, you know, Kentucky should adopt this model or, you know, Florida's legislation they passed last year is, is doing something the wrong way or something. I don't think history provides us lessons at that level of specificity. I actually don't even think it really provides us um, necessarily in guidance about what to do doctrinally either. But what I, what I think is the value of this history is often what is the value of history and legal history in particular, which is to remind us that the institutions and the kind of culture and the ways of doing things that we have today are not sort of natural, preordained, unchangeable kind of expressions of some inherent essence of America or adversarialism or law or anything else that you would say. Um, that they were kind of the product of choices and debates that people had and people made choices at a particular time. And 
um, those choices then had consequences and, and some of the possibilities that people envisioned a hundred years ago kind of died out and were forgotten and didn't have really consequences later on because they were lost. But, um, but basically that there's this whole kind of spectrum of possibility because law and courts are human institutions that are made through human choices and human debate. And so that we shouldn't feel um, that we have to be constrained by whatever it is we learned in law school or we kind of have grown up to assume is what the criminal courts have to look like or what a prosecutor has to look like or what a public defender has to conceive of as their job or, you know, that we could kind of try to think imaginatively about what are these institutions doing and what do we want them to do? And in order for them to do what we want them to do, maybe we have to envision the people that work in them differently or the types of um, officials and what we call them or what their job is or who pays them or et cetera differently. And so I think that's hopefully the lesson I would like people to take away from the book is that we can um, we don't have to be, we have to be constrained by this history in the sense that we have to start from what we have, but we don't have to be constrained by this history in the sense that we can't decide to do things differently or try to do things differently. And so I think that's what I actually find so interesting about, to go back to the very beginning, these progressive era debates is that even though some of these things they were proposing sound kind of wacky to us today, perhaps, um, they were clearly just very open to sort of totally rethinking a lot of things. And they would say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have an adversarial model or maybe we should have, you know, maybe law school should be, there should be some specialized training for criminal lawyers that's different from other lawyers, or maybe um, we should have prosecutors and defenders switch places once, you know, over time, or then we should, have judges be drawn from only lawyers that had previously been public defenders or prosecutors. So they had all kinds of ideas, some of which have kind of faded away. But I think we need some of that kind of um, imaginative capability today to kind of reimagine the courts and criminal law to um to be sort of legitimate institutions that are doing something that people in society want them to be doing. Well, so Sarah, in, in closing, I have to say that reading your book, I mean, it was a fascinating story about the history of the concept of a public defender, but I couldn't shake the feeling that it was also a story about the bar and a story about the stories the bar tells itself about itself. And I wonder if you could say a little something about what we as lawyers can learn from this story about what we do, why we do it, and sort of the history of the legal profession. Yeah. So it certainly is, I would say, a history about the legal profession in a way. It's kind of odd teaching in a law school because like I think like a lot of people write about the history of police, but they don't usually also teach at the police academy or, or something. So I feel kind of um, like I'm in this weird double position because I'm I teach future lawyers. But I do think the book, in some sense, has a critical spirit towards the legal profession. Um, and I think really the problem, I mean, the legal profession is a very vast and diverse profession, right? And lawyers at, you know, lawyers at the local level do all kinds of different things. But nevertheless, they're the kind of standard view of a lawyer often that lawyers have or that law schools are kind of built around is that a lawyer is someone you pay to represent your private interest in the marketplace. And it's kind of all wrapped up in this sort of um free market kind of sort of free agent, like the lawyer has no obligations other than to represent the interest of his client. And that model doesn't really work very well for public defenders, which I go through in the book. Um, 
because even if you think public defenders are representing their individual clients, they're they're not getting paid by their clients, right? They're getting paid by the government. So already there's you're going to have to think a little differently, at least, about what it means to be a public defender. And I think that model probably doesn't work for other types of lawyers as well, like lawyers who work in um, many capacities in the public sector or in the public interest. And obviously, I'm not, I mean, obviously, a lot of people have done a lot of very interesting thinking about what it means to be a lawyer in all of these different roles. And there's a very rich literature about that. But I think contributing this kind of historical story to that um, really highlights the need to think more expansively, I guess, about what it means to be a lawyer and what implications that has for how we think about how law schools are designed, how um, legal, how we invest in kind of, um, you know, where we direct resources and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess that's one thing. I guess the other thing, yeah, I mean, definitely the, the, the legal profession likes to tell very self-celebratory stories about itself, I think. And so they always, they like to tell these stories that like, um, you know, over time, we've come to a greater and greater understanding of the importance of due process for everyone. And Gideon was this great shining process, shining promise of equal justice for all. And unfortunately, politicians haven't fulfilled the promise, right? And, or local governments or state governments haven't adequately funded public defender's office and it's kind of their fault. But like we, the legal profession understand the importance of constitutional rights. Um, and I think that story is um, depends upon kind of overlooking the fact that the legal profession itself was historically very divided about these questions and that, you know, lawyers debated whether there should be public defenders or not, or whether there should be public funding for this or not. So um, the fact that they all celebrate Gideon at a very high level of generality, I think kind of papers over these these other historical legacies of division within the legal profession that still have consequences today. And um, so I guess another lesson would be that the legal profession should be kind of less concerned about celebrating the legal profession and, and kind of more, um, you know, like let's have these, let's like have these debates within the legal profession about what, we think about these questions. Um, and that might mean confronting the histories within the legal profession of debate or exclusion or, um, you know, just kind of, um, you know, the things about the legal profession's history that maybe are not so worthy of celebration, but nevertheless need to be confronted to kind of move forward. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I love the book. It was really a great pleasure talking to you about it. And I really hope listeners will check it out because it made a huge impression on me. Thank you so much. Thank you. the name of Snoop for always snooping round. He was the most peculiar man I've ever seen. I'll give you a description of the man I mean. Snoop's a lawyer, never wore a collar. Snoop's a lawyer, charged an awful price. Snoop's a lawyer, never spent a dollar. No one ever took a bit of his advice. A lady worth a million dollars said, dear me, I'd like to marry, but I'm over 83. She went to Snoop's lawyer for his sympathy. He married her and took the million for his fee. Snoop's lawyer knew that she was wealthy. Snoop's lawyer hoped she'd die, of course. Snoop's lawyer found her very healthy. Now he'd give a million for a quick divorce. Oh, <laughs> awfully good. 
A lady lost a little dog she couldn't trace. And while she spoke, the tears were streaming down her face. Snoop's lawyer said, I'd like to take your case. In fact, I'd like to take the little doggy's place. Whoops, the lawyer thought he was a devil. Snoop's lawyer gave her arm a jog. Snoop's lawyer wasn't on the level. No wonder all the people called him Dirty Dog. A fellow was arrested only yesterday. He stole 11 bottles from a swell cafe. But Snoop's lawyer laughed right in the judge's face. He said 11 bottles do not make a case. Excuse it, please. Snoop's lawyer's client's head is swollen. Snoop's lawyer didn't get him fined. Snoop's lawyer drank of what was stolen because he said that justice always should be blind. Mm -hmm.